Good morning, Memphis. Oh, what a great time to spend a little bit of our weekend morning together. I'm Sutta, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So what comes to mind when you hear the word evangelical? What or who did you just picture in your mind? Well, increasing attention has been given to white evangelicals. So in the past several election cycles, white evangelicals have been courted as a voting block. Uh, reporters have often explored the connections or even the contradictions between white evangelicals and support for Trump. And then even today, white evangelicals and vaccine hesitancy is a key focus as we consider public health in the COVID-19 pandemic. But what does it really mean to be a white evangelical and how might those experiences experiences differ by gender? These are questions that you may not have even known to ask yourself, but now that I've asked them, you probably want to know the answer. So joining me today is an expert on white evangelical womanhood in particular, Kelsey Michael. Kelsey Michael is a PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park, a university flagship fellow. Her research concerns how religious practices converge with gender and race to produce the political subject. Her dissertation, Sunday Morning Matters, the production of gendered subjects in white evangelical life is a study of patriarchal worship practices in predominantly white evangelical churches and how they shape dimensions of church-going women's lives that are not often considered religious. So work and labor, sexual intimacy and pleasure, performance and material culture, and embodiment and desire. Her most recent scholarly work appears in feminist media studies. Welcome, Kelsey Michael, it's such a Pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Hi, Sana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for our conversation. Yes, me too, because, you know, I've definitely read these different articles about white evangelicals, especially, you know, kind of like the big question of like, why would white evangelicals uh, be so supportive of Trump and, and different types of policies that seem very much at odds um, with the re their religious attitudes. And so in that regard, I'm like been very intrigued by this puzzle. And so I'm so excited to have you, an expert here, <laughs> to kind of unravel maybe some of these mysteries. Yes, absolutely. And like you alluded to in your introduction, political scientists and sociologists have been interested in this persistent political power of white evangelical Christians, even as evangelical demographics have diversified. Um, so um, Janelle Wong at the University of Maryland has, has written about this. And over the last year, even in connection to some of the things you mentioned, like support for Trump, like vaccine hesitancy, like even the, um, the assault on the US Capitol in January and its connections to white 
Christian nationalists, for example. You know, you've seen, we've seen a spate of books and articles come out that are focused on the collusion of white evangelical Christianity with white supremacy, with imperialism, with things like that. And, you know, this is even, this is always timely. Just, um, we, we saw it, for example, in last month's attacks on Asian women at Atlanta area spas, for example, and um, how Robert Aaron Long, the shooter, was a church-going white Southern Baptist man who explained, and I'm putting that in air quotes, explained the murders in the terms of Christian sexual purity culture. So again, you know, you, you see the connection between these things. And I, I would urge your listeners to, to listen to your conversation, go back to the podcast, listen to your conversation with Dr. Anna Storty, where you talk about some of these things. But so, so all of that is, is in the air, maybe now more than ever, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, we do hear these kind of terms like thrown around like evangelical or just like white Christianity. And I think oftentimes people hear evangelical and they kind of the white is silent, right? So it's automatically you're thinking white evangelical, you're thinking, you know, Republican, conservative or politically conservative. Um, but could you maybe tell us you know, what, what does it mean to be an evangelical, maybe to people who even think about themselves as evangelicals, or if that is the same or different from how maybe reporters or people in the media are talking about evangelicals? That is such a great question. And in fact, it is one that is continuously debated by <laughs> both by scholars and um, people who attend what we might call evangelical churches themselves. And so there's a lot of debate over, you know, is evangelicalism defined in terms of religious doctrine, for example. And so there are a lot of, you know, historians who say, oh, evangelicalism is about these like three or four different sort of uh, tenets or orthodoxies, like the fact that salvation comes through Jesus alone, the emphasis on proselytization and evangelizing him right. the term, right? Um, th things like that, you know, and, and especially sort of a focus on the Bible and often sort of a, a literal, a, a tendency towards literal interpretation of the Bible, uh, belief in its inerrancy or infallibility, things like that. Other, other people talk about sort of these more cultural markers of evangelicalism. And like you said, Often in the media, when, when the term evangelical is used, it's actually, you know, being used to refer to white evangelical Christians. And that itself speaks to this other uh, form of identification or distinction when it comes to defining what evangelical means, which is the political aspect mm -hmm. of evangelicalism. And, and when this word is used, evangelical, to refer to white evangelical Christians, what is often being referenced there is the very, very strong political preferences among white evangelical Christians in, in recent U.S. history towards uh, Republicans and overall very conservative uh, politics, partisan politics. So, you know, I, I can't actually answer the question <laughs> because, because there is so much debate over it. And I think in my own research, I argue that it's it's a little bit of all these things, right? That that belief matters and doctrine matters, culture matters, things like affect matter and and politics, like all these things converge. And so when I use the term white evangelical churches, I'm generally referring to 
predominantly white churches because segregation is still very real in, in churches uh, throughout the country, especially in the South where a lot of my research is based. And so again, these are churches that generally are focused on uh, the Bible. They put a very high, put a lot of weight on uh, Bible belief and, and um, interpreting it um, as literally as possible with some exceptions. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and often though, and, and here I'll sort of conclude this very nebulous answer to your question. <laughs> often though, the one really strong defining trait in, in white evangelicalism, at least, is actually a, a, the gender division of church leadership and labor and the exclusion of women from certain positions of authority in churches. And, and some, you know, this is actually an argument that scholars have made, historians and sociologists have said, in fact, one of the strongest sort of litmus tests for evangelicals has become uh, their uh, person's position on women's roles in church. And, and so, in fact, most, you know, all of the churches that I look at in my research, for example, women cannot preach women cannot occupy the church leadership positions that are often referred to as eldership mm -hmm. um women and then you know and then it gets a little it varies from church to church with other things like distributing communion or leading prayers or offering testimony uh, performing baptisms things like that but in general there there is a uh, a limit to to what women can what the positions that women can occupy in the church. Mm, okay, see, this is important information. So we may not know exactly <laughs> who evangelicals are, <laughs> but for the purposes of what we'll be talking about more this morning, we do have kind of some firmer ideas or grasp on what's happening in predominantly white evangelical spaces. And so one more question, just so we kind of know who we're talking about, even as it might vary a little bit. Um, is there any rough estimate of how many people identify or could be identified as evangelicals? Well, that, that's a great question too. And actually <laughs> the answer does vary depending on what, <laughs> what as, as you may know, as you know, a sociologist, depending on what questions are asked mm -hmm. in surveys. And I, I think, and again, I, this is sort of off the top of my head here, but I've seen um, estimates that put the percentage of evangelicals in the U.S. population anywhere between like 12% and 35%. Mm. That's a pretty big difference, right? Yeah. And, and it, again, it's sort of sometimes uh, pollsters are asking questions like, do you consider yourself a born-again Christian? Um, do you believe the Bible is inerrant? Do you, questions like that. And so depending on what the questions are, we sort of arrive at different mm. uh, numbers <laughs> uh, based on those questions. And again, you know, another, another thing is that the term evangelical is not a term that people who maybe attend a church that might be considered by most scholars or most researchers as evangelical, the people who go to the, that church may not themselves identify as evangelical for various reasons. So that just throws another wrench <laughs> into that equation. <laughs> Okay. Ah, so such a nebulous term, as you said earlier, but 
you mentioned something just now. You said folks who might attend a church that scholars, right, might call or identify as evangelical um, church may not, you know, themselves think of themselves like, hi, yes, I'm an evangelical. <laughs> but um, could you just give us an idea of like, what are some of the denominations that we could consider, you know, as scholars, I guess, as evangelical? Because I think listeners will too be able to be like, oh, I, I know that denomination or I've heard of that, you know, church and kind of have a firmer grasp on who might be an evangelist. Yes, yes, that's a that's a great way to approach it. So most most Baptist churches, especially Southern Baptist, is sort of the maybe a standard bearer for white evangelicalism, especially um, Presbyterian churches, specifically the Presbyterian Church in America. The Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the PCUSA, is actually considered more ecumenical. <laughs> so again, we have these very complicated divisions. Um, there, there's actually a form of Anglicanism in the U.S. The Anglican Church in North America would also be considered evangelical. Mm-hmm. Um, Churches of Christ, um, which is the tradition that I grew up in, are usually considered evangelical. And then there's some debate among scholars and and, and members of these religious communities as to whether Pentecostal churches are evangelical um, or charismatic churches in general, which are often sort of grouped under the evangelical umbrella, but there are some, some differences there between say Presbyterians and Baptist and uh, Pentecostal Christians, but, but there, there's, there's definitely affinity there as well. Okay. All right, so that kind of gives us a grasp on who we might be thinking about when we're talking about evangelicals, even if attendees or church members themselves wouldn't claim that identity for themselves. And just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with these churches or even the worship practices, could you kind of explain if, you know, if we went to an evangelical church or specifically a white evangelical church, what might we expect to happen or what are some of those kind of rituals or the norms that are happening in the church? Like if I went, you know, one morning. Right. And again, I'm not trying to be mousy or (laughs) evasive about this. Uh, It varies from church to church quite dramatically. But as I, as I explore in my research, some of the things that you can be pretty certain you'll experience again with some with some variation especially in charismatic churches but generally you're going to expect to hear a man preach (laughs) that's that's one thing you could expect to hear um you will often have a fairly there there won't be sort of like high church typically you won't have um lots of ceremony lots of ritual although again for example the anglican church in north america is one example of sort of what what people often refer to as high church Mm -hmm. and evangelical doctrine and practice so again it varies um you will sometimes you will there will be practices like um, taking communion what some people call the lord's supper or the eucharist depending on what the domination is. Um, there'll be usually lots of singing. And again, depending on what kinds of uh, kind of church it is, you might have something really produced and slick with, you know, a sort of a people up front who have microphones and a big band behind them uh, playing really contemporary music. But you also may, you know, like in many churches of Christ, especially in the South, you might have a lot of um, acapella singing, singing without instrumentation, lots of hymns, um, things like that. So again, it'll vary, but 
I think one consistent thing you're going to see is that very rarely will, will women preach in these churches. And then again, in some, in some congregations, you won't be seeing a woman distributing communion, for example, or you won't hear a woman pray. And that, that's on the more conservative end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I like to know kind of who we're talking about, get a picture of what these services might look like before we get into more of the meat of your research, which is really looking at how these um, gender division of labor within the church then are affecting um, women and how they think about themselves, not only within the church, but outside of the church as well. So I think the one thing that I'm really holding on to here is that what we do know is that men are going to do the preaching <laughs> and that there are typically very strict kind of gender roles within these churches, particularly within the white evangelical churches that are um, at the center of your research. All right, so I think this is a good place for us to take a break before we dive deeper into what these gender division of labor really means. So this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we are back here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Kelsey Michael and we are talking about white evangelical Christians and in particular talking about this gender division of labor, which I think for most folks, they're kind of familiar with there's going to be a male preacher <laughs> in general and that there might be a woman preaching on special occasions, if that is the case. Um, but when we're talking about white evangelical churches, in particular, the ones that you look at, we see an extremely strict gender division of labor. And before the break, you were saying how, you know, it's going to be a male preacher. There'll be few women in leadership roles or kind of leading the service. So I want to talk more about you know why this matters and particularly why this matters for women um so let's just start with thinking about um one just in general what are what are the messages that women are getting about their role in the church and then also maybe their role outside of the church certainly yeah so i'll start with this idea about why does this matter (laughs) and then we can talk about those those particular messages so like we were discussing earlier there's been this question of what it is that has contributed to the persistent political power of white evangelical christians in in the united states and uh, what i argue is that a key mechanism of the political formation of churchgoers, specifically white women churchgoers, has been hiding in plain sight. And that it is actually the white evangelical church worship service that has provided such remarkable continuity as a means of political formation for white evangelicals. And that gendered and racialized worship practices are a really vital part of this process. So, and a a good, sort of a good clue to the importance of the church worship service is um, the stories that came out last year during uh, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. This was when a lot of evangelical churches were refusing to comply with COVID restrictions and Mm -hmm. continuing to hold communal worship services. And this all culminated in a Supreme Court case where church representatives argued that church is essential 
And when they said church is essential, they, they didn't mean church in terms of the body of, of believers or, or congregants, but in fact that the worship service, the communal worship service is essential. And so the degree to which the weekly worship service in white evangelical churches matters to the formation of the people who attend is made clear in claims like these. And so what I'm looking at is the importance of that those rituals like you're talking about in the service to the formation of churchgoers and and the implication of white supremacy in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the the roles that women take in church, you know, this again really varies um, from church to church, congregation to congregation, denomination to denomination. But in general, what I found in my research is that women are disproportionately responsible for the social reproduction of the church. Mm-hmm. So by that, I mean, they're responsible for childcare, for the education of, of children, for delivering meals, um, doing a lot of administrative labor around, around arranging wedding showers or baby showers or coat drives or the homeless ministry and on and on, right? And so my the, the women that I talk to refer to the work that women do for the church as domestic labor, as mm. service labor. labor. I, and I would also add that it's often relational labor and, and what scholars call affective labor, doing a lot of emotional work. And many women, and not all, many women though feel that this quote unquote service work or domestic work for the church is seen as less um, spiritually productive mm. than the labor that men do, like preaching or performing baptisms or church governance issues, like making decisions about, you know, these bigger issues about directions that the church is going to go or hiring or things like that. And so just in terms of labor, for example, this affects how women experience their workplaces Mm-hmm. And the experiences that women have in their workplaces affect how they experience their labor in and for the church. Um, so, for example, you know, salaried women find tend to find spiritual value in their paid work, and some women even see their privileged positions as workers as evidence that women should not have to bear unequal responsibility for the church's social reproduction. But on the other hand, you know, some women, their experience in church as a certain type of of laborer for the church, that affects how they experience their labor at home. So some women find their domestic labor, like the chores they do, cleaning the house or taking care of their children, to be a source of really of lots of worshipful moments for them. So they find uh, worship in that, that work they're doing at home in the same way that in the church itself, they're often performing what's often figured as domestic labor there. And, and again, women respond in many diverse ways. And this is just in terms of, of sort of work and labor, but you know, some, some women are frustrated by the expectation that at home, like at church, they're expected to perform this, all the, this, to the disproportionate share of this type of labor. And some women's 
positions as white collar property owning workers shapes how they understand and inhabit the church's labor relation. So one quick example of this is that some women advocate that women's natural talents are being squandered by the gender division of church labor and leadership. And they say, you know, if things were just divided according to spiritual gifts, you know, this idea that, that, that we all have gifts that God has given us and talents that God has given us, um, then if we just divided it all up to, according to spiritual gifts, that would solve the problem of this sort of unequal distribution of labor in church. But one thing that, that I review is that this actually sort of mimics the logic that the job market is meritocratic based on skill, right? Like the best jobs will just go to the people most qualified, et cetera, or the people who will be compensated fairly based on, you know, who is the most skilled. And, and that in the same way, this argument about spiritual gifts, it actually assumes that any given church member's spiritual gift will be recognized as such. So, but that, you know, some church churchgoers are not given the opportunity to develop their gifts or be recognized as gifted in certain ways at all. And a, a good example of this is that one, one church that some of my, uh, some of the women I talked to attend, actually, they have this whole setup where they do sort of an analysis of your spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the day, women always end up in what they call coordinator roles and men always end up in visionary roles. And <laughs> this is in fact, based on the idea that, you know, as, as one woman I talked to explicitly told me, men are more gifted at being visionaries and women are more gifted at being coordinators. And so ultimately <laughs> there's not a, you know, there's that whole notion of who is gifted in what way is obviously socially constructed and based on these certain ideas about what men and women's natural gifts are. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm like so taken aback by how, you know, you explain that women often kind of feel that their spiritual connectedness or contributions are happening, you know, outside of the church or outside of their roles um, within the church. And I think for most people, we would think, well, obviously, whatever you're doing within the church is like this kind of spiritual outpouring or, you know, some connected to God in some special way <laughs> that it is an outpouring of your, you know, spiritual gifts. But it sounds like for the women, they felt very constrained um, by the, you know, existing kind of paths that are available to them within the church. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and again, it's, that's not the case for, for all women, certainly, and, and not for all the women I talked to, but, but many women did, you know, I had some women who, who would say, I, I one, one good example, I think, is a, a woman who said that at her church, you know, women weren't fully able to lead or to exercise their spiritual gifts. And then she said that her work her job has been um, a saving grace for her because she feels like she is able to to lead spirit be a spiritual leader in her work and she says she told me this is a quote I feel like that's more my ministry than anything at church because I don't have the ability to do it there and I look at that as God's gift to me he knew I needed it he knew he had given me gifts and he knew I was going to want and need a place to use them mm. 
So yeah, <laughs> that's not, and again, this is women who have the types of jobs that allow them to see it as a, a, a place where they are valued, mm -hmm. right? So it is a privileged position that they're already in that allows them to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in addition to work and labor, both inside and outside of the church, I know you also look at um, sexual intimacy and pleasure. Um, so I'm really curious <laughs> to what you found um, in terms of sexual intimacy and pleasure and how, you know, the church is impacting um, how women are thinking about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So in general, women in white evangelical churches symbolically approach God through men. Okay. And what I mean by that is that men often act as mediators between women and God, even though that is not an explicit uh, doctrine. Very few, very few evangelicals would, would argue that, you know, that is something they believe. But in practice, in effect, that's what happens in the worship service. So men perform baptisms. Men in many churches, only men distribute communion. Men preach. Men, much more often than women, enjoy greater proximity to symbols of the sacred by, you know, getting to occupy the pulpit, stand in front of the cross if, if there is one on the, on the stage or behind the communion table, things like that. And again, these arrangements implicitly position men as important facilitators of women's correspondence with God. And like I said, this is not an explicit hierarchy. I know, you know, evangelicals would, would certainly say, you know, that men are not inherently closer to God than women. They're not spiritually superior to women. But in effect, this is what happens in the church. And many women I talk to experience it that way. It's sort of feeling less than mm -hmm. um, men based on what they experience in the worship service. So in, in looking at sexual intimacy and pleasure, what I found is that men are mediators between women and God, not just in the worship service, but also in the white evangelical construction of marriage, which compares husbands to Christ and wives to the church. So again, this idea of you know Christ as the intercessor, the mediator between people and God or between the church and God and in, in the evangelical idea of marriage, men are compared to Christ, women to the church. So this, for, for women I talked to, many unmarried women told me that this makes them feel as though their relationship to God is not complete without a man. Oh. Now, and for some, for some married women, this idea even affects their experience of sex. And so for some women, uh, their experience of sexual pleasure with their husbands becomes a spiritual experience of God to them. Wow. And, and, that, and that is actually, I'm drawing here on the work done by a sociologist named Kelsey Burke, who looked at these online forums where married and monogamous, mostly white evangelical Christians talk about sex and um, exploring you know their sexuality within the context of their marriage and that's what she found is this this idea that women and and very you know much less so men that women found that their first experiences of sexual pleasure 
were spiritual, that it somehow brought them closer to God because it brought them closer to their husbands. So you see again how the, 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 the role of the man is this sort of facilitator between uh, or as facilitator of women's relationship to God becomes, you know, commutes from church to even the most intimate spaces like sex. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so fascinating. And, and especially that women would really articulate it in this way, right? To really connect it very um, specifically, right? To their experiences of spirituality or just their connection, how they think uh, think about their connection to God. Um, you know, I'm like, wow, I don't think I would think about it that way. <laughs> right, right. And so, yeah, and so that's, and I, again, want to give credit where it's due. The 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 research that was originally done on this was by the sociologist, uh, Dr. Kelsey Burke. But I think that what is missing, that sort of what goes undeveloped in her analysis is the way that this experience mirrors what's happening in the church worship service. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what I draw out in my own research. Yeah, but I mean, I can see how, I mean, I definitely see how this connection could be made even subconsciously, but here maybe even a more conscious kind of connection. Um, but, th- but then also just thinking about how important um, God and spirituality can be in someone's life to where it would be very important that you have um, a tangible connection or some sort of tangible proof of this connection and how then um, that sexual intimacy might even take on you know, even more meaning. Right, right, absolutely. And I think that it's really important, and this is a this is a good place to talk about whiteness because as I said, you know, uh, I'm trying to attend to race sort of throughout all of, all of my research on this. And, and one place we see whiteness and white supremacy in action is in fact the way that a lot of these women on these online forums claim that sexual pleasure did not come naturally to them. They, they talk about sort of these, there's sort of these sexual awakening narratives where they, they talk about how their bodies got in the way of exper- experiencing sexual pleasure. And that is a narrative that draws on an ideology of white femininity, especially white Christian femininity as inherently pure or passionless. And a lot of scholars have, have written about this. Um, Evelyn Hammonds is one I'd, I'd recommend to people. But, you know, so here you even see in these, the way these women are experiencing their bodies and experiencing sex and in the way that they narrate those experiences, there's actually this legacy of, of white supremacist ideas about white femininity that's getting reproduced in, in what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's so. This is like blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> blowing my mind because, like, as a person who has sex, I'm like, I just would not have thought about this in this way. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm like really trying to face this. In this way. <laughs> and also, like, wow, do you really? Do y'all really feel that way, or are you? Or is this just part of like you recreating? this narrative and being in line with, right, the belief system and kind of the culture. 
Right, right. It's a great question. But you know, so again, and I didn't ask my the women that I interviewed about their sex lives in detail, not to say that it never came up. But um, I, I will say that, you know, one person I talked to is a therapist, a counselor, and she she's talked to many married couples, um, you know, white evangelical married couples. And what she has found is it this is something that people are experiencing where she says, you know, that women come in and say, I, I just want my husband to feel pleasure. And it's not, it's not really for me, but I want to do this for him. And there's, again, this reproduction of these narratives that, you know, women somehow, again, it's always, it's implicitly, it's white women somehow are not uh, sexual or, or sort of inherently pure and and that the men, however, that sex for them is sort of like inevitable and, and natural. And there's this binary that that is getting reproduced and how how these couples are interacting sexually. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, I'm still like, I'm going to be thinking about this for the rest of the day. <laughs> um, now, I know there are a couple of other areas that you look at um, the impact of white evangelical church. Um, as it relates to women. Um, But before we get to those other areas, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll hear about uh, both performance and material culture and then also embodiment and desire. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We are on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm joined by Kelsey Michael. And we are talking about white evangelical Christianity and womanhood in particular. And I hope that you have been listening this whole time because before the break, we were talking about um, sexual intimacy and how it's shaped by kind of thinking about the church. Um, And if you miss it, you'll have to catch the replay. because my mind is still blown. I know you looked at a few other areas of women's lives where we see in particular this um, gender division of labor within white evangelical churches and the impact. So not just work and labor, which we talked about previously, and then obviously the sexual intimacy part, uh, but also as it relates to um, these ideas of performance and material culture, but then also embodiment and desire. And so I'm interested to hear, you know, what you found in these areas as well. Right. So on the topic of identity, performance, and material culture, what I looked at is the weddings of women who grew up in white evangelical churches in Alabama and Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, over the past decade or so, there's been a real trend across the U.S. um, for brides to embrace personalized weddings, right? That's, that's almost the, the, um, it's, it's sort of the default <laughs> now, but for women who grew up in conservative white evangelical churches in the American South, their participation in this trend must also be understood in light of the site where their weddings do not occur, which is the church. <laughs> so in these weddings, you know, everything from the food to the decor to the music choices offers implicit commentary on the positions that women occupy at church on Sunday morning. So specifically, what these women are trying to do is perform their identity through the weddings. And, you know, (laughs) 
their church, the churches that they've grown up in, the churches where some of them still attend, women in those churches, women's identity performance has historically not exactly been welcomed, right? There's there's not a lot of space in the worship service itself for women to express themselves or perform who they are. Um, maybe that, that happens in other spaces, but in the church building, especially, and in the worship service, that's very limited. So the women, these women choose to get married somewhere else because if they want to have a wedding that performs who they are, you know, their experiences in church really don't align with that vision, right, of what they want in their weddings. And so in their weddings, the brides actually relocate an idea of church and they spatialize their identities somewhere else. So the weddings actually become microcosms of all these different forces that have shaped these women. So they're trying to sort of tell a story about who they are and what has made them who they are. And the church is a part of that, even as these weddings are taking place somewhere other than a church. So, you know, I'll, I'll, a quick example about sort of how the weddings reimagine church. You know, quite a few of the brides that I talked to designed and described their weddings as these like scenes of true religion. And, <laughs> right, and, and unlike women who were raised in church traditions that were less conservative on gender, these women that I talked to, they didn't, they didn't simply just replicate the church service in their weddings, they really did sort of re-envision or reimagine it. So um, Leslie, and this is a pseudonym, but one woman I talked to named Leslie wanted to give her wedding the feeling of a tent revival, she said. <laughs> and, and she stressed that the sort of blue collar or rural origins of her church tradition, that's something that she wanted to evoke in her wedding and that she actually felt like the church building where she had grown up would not actually, um, would not actually do justice to that that feeling that she wanted to create at her wedding site. And so she told me that she wanted her wedding to feel like something worshipful, to feel sacramental. And so for her, her wedding was actually more in keeping with authentic church, her idea of authentic church than the church today, like a church worship service today is. And so for her, you know, this was a theme also in, in several weddings, you know, several brides had hymn singings in their weddings. Um, she, she grew up, uh, several women grew up in churches of Christ where typically worship is um, acapella without instruments, but you know, she had a hymn singing with a guitar in her, her wedding. Most brides wrote their own vows. So they sort of reimagined the ideas about what they were committing to and, and what that looked like. And then um, Leslie even wrote the speech for the officiant who, who married her, her and her husband. So when, when she had him, when he, when he asked who gives this woman in marriage, she had her dad, her dad actually said, actually, I don't own her. You know, I'm not giving her away, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, through her wedding, she, she felt like her wedding was actually more like real church than church itself is today. And she also found a way to, you know, as sort of the star of the wedding and the author of the wedding, you know, who wrote so much of, of the ceremony itself, she really 
reimagined the gendered norms that are embedded in church worship services. In her wedding, that was not the case, right? A woman was front and center. A woman was in charge and was writing the quote unquote, you know, what you could call the liturgy of the wedding, right? So, so in that way, she, she was able to tell a story about the importance of religion and church in her life, but also take charge of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, man, that's like such a powerful example because we're also, you know, I'm thinking of how central uh, weddings often are to women or at least how culturally we think about, um, you know, weddings being like the woman's special day and like a defining moment in her life. And so in your example, you know, Leslie really took a stand and said, this is how I imagine myself, my role, um, not just in this one day, but maybe even in the world at large, even though I'm not able to kind of enact that on a daily basis um, and certainly not within the church as it currently is. Yes, exactly, exactly. Wow. Um, So I'm just thinking about how, you know, so far as what you've been telling me, you know, the women you talk to are really aware of how these gendered practices um, and they kind of, you know, in some cases really take them on themselves and kind of reproduce them or act within them anyway. And in other ways really try to actively, you know, resist them as well. Yes, and I think that that brings up a, another really important thing that I, I wanna emphasize, which is that, you know, when it comes to women in religion, especially in patriarchal religious uh, communities, there's been a fixation among scholars and pundits to focus on this concept of agency or resistance. And what I'm more interested in exploring is how these women conceptualize and dramatize their own subjectivity. And what I mean by that is their awareness of themselves as people who have been politically shaped and formed and produced and and their awareness of those forces or their relations of power in which they are situated that have shaped them as people. And so you know, many of my participants actually understand their dispositions, their drives, their desires as the work of God in their lives. And so, in fact, some women see their feelings about women's roles in church as coming from God. And this this actually applies to both sides of this issue. So some women who think that women should not be in positions of authority, you know, talk to me about how they feel like, you know, it's hard for them to separate their feelings about that from the presence of God in their hearts and in their, in their lives. And so they're like, well, I think, you know, I don't, this could be from the Holy spirit. Other women say, you know, I'm very close with God and I don't think God would, would say that women can't be in positions of authority. Right. So some women really struggle to make that distinction between God's work in, in them, in themselves and, um, and, you know, whatever else. <laughs> and, and, and other women though, many women actually do try to make that distinction. And, I, and this is something I really want to highlight, which is that, you know, a lot of women I talk to really, they make an effort to identify the different forces that have shaped them as women. And that includes the church, growing up in the church. That includes things like capitalism or, <laughs> um, or God himself, right? And they, they want to identify what parts of themselves they can attribute to which of those different things, right? 
And so some women even describe a real divide in themselves. They're like, oh my gosh, like on the one hand, I see how the church has shaped me, but I also kind of want to reject certain parts of that. Um, and so some women I talked to actually describe this as a difference between uh, godly women and Christian women. And the idea is a godly woman is sort of subject only to, to God himself. And she is um, produced and shaped by God. And a Christian woman in, in their you know, terminology, a Christian woman is um, more a product of the church and the social uh, socialization of the church. And, but at the same time, these women I talked to who made this distinction said, I see it in myself that both these things <laughs> are, are present, right? And in all of these conversations though, this is really important, uh, where these women are trying to identify, you know, well, what part of me comes from growing up in church and what part of me, you know, comes from God affecting my life in all those conversations, whiteness is rarely a context that is acknowledged. Of course, that is unsurprising, I think, <laughs> but um, I think it is important because I did also interview some black and brown women who attend predominantly white evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. And of course, in that case, you know, it's, race is, is something they're constantly thinking about in terms of how it is shaping who they are and affecting, you know, the things they want, the things they're attracted to and how they, how they uh, grapple with that. And so again, you know, it's just, it's important to note that these, the women I talk to are very cognizant of, of themselves as political subjects, um, which is, you know, in, in, to use the sort of scholarly term, but, but depending on who they are, they're limited in their ability to really fully um, acknowledge all the different contexts that might have shaped them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is so fascinating. I mean, especially for, you know, folks listening here in Memphis, you know, church is such a big part of our lives, whether we actually attend a church or think of ourselves as members of a church, you know, the South is so influenced by church culture, kind of overall that some of these kind of ideas or norms are kind of embedded in our lives in ways that we may or may not realize are attributed to some sort of kind of religious practice or religious beliefs. Um, so to think about the women that you spoke to and how they're kind of, it seems like even grappling with how much of, you know, their own ideas or actions are being influenced or have been a product of whether their relationship to the church or their personal kind of relationship to God. Oh, certainly. Yes. And, you know, a good, so a good example of sort of the southern part of this is to go back to the weddings that I was talking about earlier right so one one context that these that women sort of pay homage to as shaping them is geography and and the south and and like you're saying the relationship between um, southernness and religion and these other things is is really hard to sort of separate right but um some of the, the women whose weddings that I looked at, you know, they described their weddings as Southern and they said it was because of, you know, the food that they served and the music and the emphasis on local history. But, you know, they would also emphasize that their weddings represented more of the quote, new South. <laughs> and, you know, so in my research, I trace the twisty history of this term, which in every iteration, 
you know, from the from post, you know, Reconstruction to the day, it has tended to whitewash and romanticize the history of the South. And so when women say, when, when these uh, white evangelical women say their weddings are New South, you know, what are they referring to? Well, they're, they're not actually referring to any particular historical period. They're, they're actually trying to have their cake and eat it too, by which I mean, they're trying to claim Southernness without all its baggage, specifically mm -hmm. racism and uh, class issues. So, you know, the, the weddings, and I actually look at my own wedding a little bit in, in my dissertation too. So I include myself in this, but these are weddings that sort of try to emphasize like it's homemade decor, it's handcrafted food and decor um, instead of store-bought, things like that. It's so sort of this effort to say, we're not rich, we're not rich. And then also sort of this contrast between, you know, to say, oh, our weddings are new South, they're not old South, or our weddings are not the country club South. And that's really telling because, you know, country clubs are an emblem of the relationship between whiteness and wealth, especially in the South, in the U.S. And so drawing that contrast is an effort for these women to say, not only are we not rich, we're also not racist, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but we want to honor our Southern, you know, quote unquote, Southern heritage. But of course, in these weddings, you know, even my, again, my own wedding is a good example. It took place on land that has been in my family for generations. So you have um, white property ownership and wealth that accrues through generations that is, that is absolutely crucial to our weddings. And so we actually, even though we sort of may have tried to extricate ourselves from the history of white supremacy in the South, our weddings were ultimately totally inseparable from it. They're, they're embedded within it. And so again, it's a good example of sort of um, Southernness coming together <laughs> with, with uh, you know, these other, these other things where white Christian women are sort of trying to uh, account for the things that have shaped them and sometimes not totally <laughs> recognizing all the different forces that are at work there. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think just everything you shared with us this morning, just further emphasizing you know, the importance of church in our lives, both the importance we ascribe to it, but then also how church is shaping us, right, in specific ways, whether it is around, you know, ideas of gender roles or class or even race, right, and how church is very central to all these various aspects of our lives, um, whether we realize it or not. Um, so I know we're almost at the end of our time together. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity if there's anything you wanted to kind of close with and leave our listeners with. I know we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm still thinking about that sexual intimacy part. <laughs> That's what's on my mind. Uh, but <laughs> if you would like to leave our listeners with kind of the final word as we've talked about white evangelical Christianity and womanhood. Right. I mean, one really pithy way to sum up what I'm arguing a little, maybe a little flippantly, is that what happens in church doesn't stay in church. Um, and so, and the church worship service, the, the experiences that women have in the church worship service deeply shape them. And 
I, I didn't really talk about this very much, but I'll just very quickly say that one thing that I look at in my research is sort of the history of these gendered practices in white evangelical churches and, and where they came from and where they started. And, you know, we can sort of trace this, um, some, this shift that happened in the early 19th century in American evangelicalism, American evangelicalism that continues to affect white evangelical churches where women went from having a bit more of an active and authoritative role in church to having less and less. And, and that was that shift was premised on these ideas of, of white women as uniquely domestic, again, sort of um, a, a vision of white womanhood that is, is based in white supremacy because it was based on um, the labor that that enslaved black women did for uh, white women, you know, before so the Civil War and then after the Civil War, it was based on the the labor done by black and brown women and um, and poor women, and so I, I really just want to emphasize how you know these practices have a relationship to white supremacy and um you know if if listeners are interested in that i'm happy for them to to reach out to me and i can share more with them about that history and about the work that historians have done that kind of help us put these ideas about women being supposedly you know white women being supposedly uniquely domestic and put those in conversation with uh, you know sort of racist narratives about um, black women and other women of color. And I think that that's, I think it's just a very important thing to emphasize is that relationship between what happens in church specifically these gendered worship rituals and the narratives that they arose out of. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So important. Well, Kelsey, it has been a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sana. I really appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thank you so much to Kelsey Michael for spending some time with us this morning and really breaking down some of the ways that these gender divisions of labor within white evangelical churches are shaping women congregants and how they think about womanhood, both as it's expressed within the church and then outside the church as well. I know that was could be a very complicated um, and maybe even sensitive topic as we think about um, church and God and the role that religion plays within our own lives, often thinking about, you know, a very personal relationship. Um, but I think it was so important to really think about how what happens in the church, you know, doesn't stay in the church, right? It's impacting far more than just um, what's happening within the doors of the church. So for today's positive note, I just want to give you this reminder to count your blessings, not your problems. Y'all, this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I can't wait to have you back here with me next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. <laughs>